Chapter Two of In Brief Authority by F. Anstey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Two. Rushing to conclusions. Mrs. Wibberley Stimson, as she sat in the drawing room where the curtains had been drawn and the lamps lighted, was occupied with a project which she was anxious to impart to her husband as soon as he returned. Some time before, a dull rumble from the valley had informed her that his usual train was approaching Gablehurst Station, and now she heard the click of the front gate, the crunch of his well-known step on the gravel, and the opening of the hall door. "'I want to speak to you for a moment, Sidney,' she said, opening the drawing-room door. "'Come in here before you go up to dress.' Mrs. Stimson insisted on his dressing for dinner. It was customary, in all really good society— and also it would prevent him from feeling awkward in evening clothes, which it never did. "'Very well, my dear,' he said, entering. "'Any news with you?' which was his invariable question. Mr. Stimson was short and inclined to be stout. What remained of his hair was auburn, and separated in the middle by a wide parting. He had close-cut whiskers of a lighter red, which met in his moustache, and if his eyes had been narrow, instead of round and filmy like a seal's, and his mouth had been firm, and not loose and slightly open, he would not have been at all a bad caricature of His Majesty King Henry the Eighth. "'Nothing, except—but I'll tell you about that afterwards. Sit down, do, and don't fidget. Well, I've been thinking, Sidney, that we really ought to ask the Cheverel Thistletons to a quiet little dinner. Not to meet any of our usual set, of course.' We could have the dear rector, who, if he is low church, is very well connected, and Lady Harriet Elmsley. Mr. Stimson showed no enthusiasm at the suggestion. Lady Elmsley, Selina, he cried, but we don't know her ladyship. I do wish you would learn to use titles correctly, Sidney. Lady Harriet Elmsley, not Lady Elmsley. And you shouldn't speak of her, except to servants, as her ladyship. That's only done by inferiors. "'Well, my love, whatever may be the correct way of speaking of her, the fact remains that we haven't the honour of her acquaintance.' "'That's just where you're mistaken. We have, or at least I have.' And she described how she'd come to enjoy that privilege. "'Well,' he admitted at the conclusion, "'she certainly seems to have made herself exceedingly affable, but it doesn't follow that she'd come and dine, even if we asked her.' "'She would if it was to meet the Thistletons.' "'Perhaps so, my love. But, um, we don't know that they would come.' "'Of course they would, if they knew we were expecting Lady Harriet. For goodness' sake, Sidney, don't swing your foot like that. You know I can't bear it. All you have to do is to find out, from Mr. Thistleton, what evenings the week after next would be most convenient, and I'll undertake the rest.' "'I—I I really couldn't do that, Selina.' I'm a proud man in my way, and I don't care about exposing myself unnecessarily to a rebuff. Why should you be rebuffed? After all, he's only a junior partner. True, my love, but that doesn't make him less standoffish. He may be in the business, but he's not off it. I doubt myself whether even old Cramphorn would venture to invite him to dinner, and if he did, I'd bet a tidy sum that the Honourable Mr. Chevrel Thistleton— Mr. Not the Honourable Mr. Thistleton, Sidney, corrected his wife, who had studied all such minutiae in a handbook written by a lady of unimpeachable authority. The term is never employed in ordinary conversation, or on visiting cards. 
but if you won't show a proper spirit i shall write myself to mrs thistleton and propose one or two dates it would be no good my love said mrs stimson brought to bay because if you must know i um, did approach the subject with thistleton and well his manner was not sufficiently encouraging to induce me to try it again not so fond of being made to feel as if i was no better than one of our own clerks i get quite enough of that from old cramphorn you should assert yourself more sydney if you want people to respect you i'm always asserting myself but old cramphorn never listens just goes on his own way won't hear of any changes what was good enough when the firm started a hundred years ago is good enough for him now i'm all for new ideas myself progress and so forth that's what has kept us back said mrs wibberley stimson we should have been in a far better set here than we're ever likely to be now if you hadn't given yourself out as a violent radical when it's well known that all best gablehurst people are conservatives and several who are not really entitled to be anything of the kind as it is i suppose i must be content to pass my life in this suburban hole and mix with none but second-rate people but i certainly cannot expect lady harriet to come here and meet them so there's an end of it if she imagines i've no desire to pursue her acquaintance it can't be helped that's all and now you had better go up and dress the whole family were assembled by the time mr stimson reappeared his wife was in her armchair by the standard lamp edna was at the writing-table revising her notes of the afternoon's lecture and clarence was seated close by while ruby was whispering earnestly to daphne on one of the shins couches all of you down before me eh said the head of the family after the usual salutations had been exchanged but i went up long after everybody else and not late after all i've taught myself to dress in well under ten minutes you see wish he'd taught himself not to wear a white tie with a dinner jacket grumbled clarence to edna in an undertone couldn't you tell him about it she replied i could but what'd be the good he'd only turn up next time in a tailcoat and a black bow said clarence gloomily the poor old governess one of the people who never learn clarence's own type was that for which the latest term is nut he was accepted both by his family his intimates and himself as an infallible guide on things in general when consulted as to matters on which he happened to be entirely ignorant and these were not a few he had formed the habit of preserving a pregnant silence as of one who could say a good deal on the subject if he were at liberty to speak and this in itself denoted a certain degree of intelligence in appearance he was well built though only of average height he had small green eyes like his mother's his light sandy hair had a natural ripple and his pale face expressed nothing beyond an assured consciousness of his own superiority and yet he was not without a certain sense of humour in matters which did not immediately concern himself though owing to particular circumstances it was just then distinctly in abeyance what time do you get back from the city to-morrow afternoon my boy his father asked not going up at all pater said clarence told him i shouldn't he was thinking that after dinner would be quite time enough to break the news that on receiving a severe wigging for general slackness he had lost his temper and offered to resign his post an offer that had been accepted with disconcerting alacrity ah sydney said mrs wibberley stimson clarence knows how to assert himself you see i merely asked mr stimson explained because i'm taking a saturday off myself 
and I thought we could have a round or two of golf together, eh, my boy?' "'I don't mind going round with you before lunch,' said Clarence, "'engaged for the afternoon. But, if you'll take my advice, Governor, you'd better practice a bit longer with the pro before you attempt to play. No good trying to run till you can walk. Don't you know? What?' He had learned to terminate his sentences with what as a kind of smart shibboleth. "'Hello, Mater,' he broke off suddenly, as he noticed the pendant on her ample bosom. "'Why did you get that thing? Out of a cracker?' "'Certainly not, Clarence. I am not in the habit of wearing cheap jewellery. And this cost a considerable sum, though I dare say it is worth what I paid for it.' "'Did you go much of a mucker for it, Mater?' "'If I did, Clarence, I was well able to do so, thanks to dear old Uncle Wibberley's legacy.' "'I must say, mother,' said Edna, "'it's far the most artistic thing I've ever known you by.' "'It isn't everybody's taste,' remarked Mr. Simpson. "'But I should say myself that it wasn't a bad investment. Where did you come across it, my love?' "'My dear Sidney,' replied Mrs. Wibberley Stimson with much majesty, "'as I purchased it with my own money, where I came across it and what I paid for it are surely matters that only concern myself.' Daphne, who could hardly avoid hearing this conversation, was impressed by the tact and delicacy it displayed. It never occurred to her that Mrs. Wibberley Stimson's reticence might be inspired by other motives than a generous desire to spare her feelings. She really is quite a decent sort, she told herself. Clarence had not been unobservant of her. Indeed, it would not be too much to say that he had been acutely conscious all the time of Miss Heritage's presence. Ever since she had become a member of the household, he had alternated between the desire to impress her and the dread of becoming entangled in the toils of an artful little enchantress. It was true that since her arrival in the family she had made no effort whatever to enchant him. Indeed, she had treated him with easy indifference. But this, his experience of her sex and the world, told him, was probably assumed. She could hardly help knowing that he was something of a catch from her point of view, and scheming to ensnare him. Perhaps Clarence, with his now dubious prospects, felt himself rather less of a catch than usual. Perhaps it occurred to him that being moderately ensnared would be pleasantly exciting, since he would always know when to stop. At all events, he lounged gracefully toward the sofa on which she and Ruby were sitting. "'I say, Miss Heritage,' he began, "'you mustn't let my kitty sister bore you like this. She's been whispering away in your ear for the last ten minutes.' Daphne denied that she was being bored. "'Of course she isn't,' said Ruby. "'I was finishing the story I began telling her when we were walking home. We'd got to where Daphne first meets the fairy prince.' "'Then it's all about Miss Heritage, is it?' "'I call the heroine Daphne in my story, after her. But, of course, she isn't Miss Heritage, really.' "'You don't seem to think it very likely that Miss Heritage will ever come across a fairy prince, eh?' commented Clarence and wondered the next moment whether he mightn't have said something to commit himself. "'I hope not,' said Ruby, slipping her hand affectionately through Daphne's arm. "'Because then she'd leave me, and I should never see her again.' "'I shouldn't worry about it just yet, darling,' said Daphne, smiling. "'Fairy princes are only to be found in their own country, and it's a long way from here to Fairyland.' Clarence was noticing, not for the first time, that her full face was shaped like a shield, also that two fascinating little creases came in it when she smiled, and her pretty grey eyes had a soft sparkle in them. 
I must be jolly careful, he told himself. I should prefer, Miss Heritage, said Mrs. Wibberley Stimson, who had overheard the last sentence, that Ruby was not encouraged to fill her head with fairy tales. I don't think them good for her. Oh, come, Mater, protested Clarence, unable to resist the role of champion. Where on earth is the harm of them? Surely, Clarence, Edna put in instructively, there is this harm. They give such an utterly false impression of what life really is. That's why I've never been able to take any interest in them. More likely, said Clarence, because you've got no imagination. If I hadn't, retorted Edna, I should hardly have got through the poetry I have, most of Browning and Alfred Austin and all Ella Wheeler Wilcox. It's only the lowest degree of imagination that invents things that couldn't possibly have happened. They may have left off, Edna, but they happened once, declared Ruby. I know there used to be fairyland somewhere, with kings and queens and fairy godmothers and enchanted castles and magicians and ogres and dragons and things in it. And Miss Heritage believes it too. Don't you, Miss Heritage, dear? I am much mistaken in Miss Heritage, my dear, said Mr. Stimson gallantly. If her head isn't too well screwed on, if she'll allow me to say so, to believe in any such stuff. All very well for the nursery, you know, but not to be taken seriously, or— Why, what's that? Most extraordinary noise. Seems to come from outside, overhead. They could all hear a strange kind of flapping whirr in the air. It grew nearer and louder, and then suddenly ceased. Aeroplane, pronounced Clarence, drawing the window curtains and looking out. Miles away by now, though. Terrific pace they travel at. Too dark to see anything. He returned to the hearth-rug, and the moment afterwards the silence outside was broken by a shrill, clear call which seemed to come from silver trumpets. "'Very odd,' said Mr. Stimson. "'Someone seems to be playing trumpets on the gravel-sweep.' "'If it's one of those travelling German bands,' said his wife, "'you'd better send them away at once, Sidney.' But, whoever they were, they had already entered the hall, for almost immediately the drawing-room door was thrown open, and two persons, wearing tabards and gaily plumed hats, entered and sounded another blast. "'Pon my word, you know,' gasped Mrs. Stimson, "'this is really—' The herald stepped back as a third person entered. He was wearing a rich suit of some long-departed period, and, with his furrowed face and deep-set eyes, he rather resembled an elderly mastiff though he did not convey the same impression of profound wisdom. He gazed round the room as though he himself were as bewildered as its other occupants, who were speechless with amazement. Then his eye fell on Mrs. Wibberley Stimson, and he hesitated no longer, but, advancing towards her chair, sank with some difficulty on one knee, seized her hand, and kissed it with every sign of deep respect. "'Heaven be praised!' he cried in a voice that faltered with emotion. "'I have at last found the queen we have so long sought in vain.' He spoke with some sort of foreign accent, but they all understood him perfectly. As he knelt, they heard a loud crack, which seemed to come from between his shoulders. "'Braces given way,' whispered Clarence to Edna. "'Silly old ass to go kneeling in them.' "'Really, sir,' said Mr. Simpson, "'this is most extraordinary behaviour. "'You don't understand, Sidney,' said Mrs. Wibberley Stimson, who had recovered from her first alarm and was now in a gratified flutter. "'Remember what I told you about Lady Harriet and the pageant. 
pray get up sir she added to the stranger i haven't the advantage of knowing your name i am the court chamberlain he said and my name is Treuherz von eisenbenden it was unknown to mrs stimpson but she concluded that he was some anglo-german commercial magnate who would naturally be invited to join the committee for any such patriotic purpose as a pageant as to the excessive ceremony of his manner that was either the proper form for the occasion or what was more likely mr troitz or whatever his name was having come fresh from a dress rehearsal could not divest himself as yet of his assumed character the important point was that her interview with lady harriet had borne fruit already and in the shape of a pressing invitation to play the distinguished part of queen the advantages thus offered for obtaining a social footing amongst county people made it easy to overlook any trifling eccentricities where the intention was so obviously serious well mr troitz she said graciously since the committee have been kind enough to ask me i shall be very pleased to be your queen and if i may say so sir said her husband there are few ladies in the vicinity who would prove more competent in fact that will do sydney said his wife if lady harriet and the committee did not consider me competent to be the queen they would not have asked me and mrs stimpson said no more pardon mr Troyhats said looking at him with solemn surprise but who is this this is my husband mr Troyds. let me introduce him your husband then he will be the king the king cried mr stimpson why really i'm not sure that would be altogether in my line nonsense sydney of course you'll be the king if they want you and this is my son clarence mr Troyds. my daughters edna and ruby a crown prince cried Troyheads, and bent low to each in turn and two no i mistake three princesses ah it is too much for me altogether it was almost too much for ruby who giggled helplessly while even daphne had to bite her lip rather hard for a moment the other young lady corrected mrs wibberley stimpson is merely my daughter ruby's governess miss heritage but if you like to find a place for her as one of my ladies of honour or something i have no objection to her accepting a part she added reflecting that miss heritage's manners and appearance would add to the family importance while it would be a comfort to have an attendant who could not give herself such airs as might a girl belonging to a county family naturally said Troyheads, inclining himself again any member of your majesty's household you desire to bring very well i suppose miss heritage you have no objection and you will accompany us please and now mr Troitz, about when shall we be wanted when he replied but now at once already i have the car waiting now exclaimed clarence run time to rehearse what who said anything about rehearsing clarence said his mother impatiently it's necessary for them to see us and talk over the arrangements it's not likely to take long but it'll do later my love put in mr stimpson who did not like the idea of turning out without his dinner fact is mr troitz we were just about to sit down to dinner why not keep the car waiting a bit and join us no ceremony you know just as you are sire i regret that it is impossible he said i have undertaken to convey you with all possible speed if we delay i cannot answer for what may happen 
"'You hear what Mr. Troyd says, Sidney,' said Mrs. Wibberley Stimson, alarmed at the idea of another being chosen in her absence. "'What does it matter if we do dine a little late? Children, we must go and put on our things at once. Your warmest cloaks, mind. We're sure to find it cold motoring. Sidney and Clarence, you'd better get your coats on. We shall be down directly.' Mr. Troyhead and the heralds stood at attention in the hall. While Clarence and his father struggled into their greatcoats, neither of them in a very good temper, Mr. Stimson being annoyed at postponing his dinner for what he called tomfoolery, and Clarence secretly sulky because his parent could not be induced to see the propriety of going up to change his tie. "'I haven't yet made out, mother,' said Edna, as they came downstairs, "'exactly where we're going to, or what we're expected to do when we get there.' "'It will either be the Hermitage, Lady Harridge, you know, or Mr. Troyter's country-house, wherever that is, and of course the committee require to know what times will suit us for rehearsing.' "'I wish you'd settle it all without me,' complained Edna. "'I'd much rather stay at home and run over my lecture notes. Well, if I must come, I shall bring my notebook with me, in case I'm bored.' And she ran into the drawing-room, and came back with a notebook rather as an emblem of her own intellectual superiority than with any intention of referring to it. However, as will be found later, the manuscript proved to be of some service in the future. Daphne and Ruby were the last to join the party in the hall, Ruby wildly excited at the unexpected jaunt and the prospects of not going to bed till ever so late, and Daphne, though a little doubtful whether Mrs. Stimson was quite justified in bringing her, inclined to welcome almost any change from the evening routine of Inglegarth. And then, after Mrs. Stimson had given some hurried instructions to the hopelessly mystified Mitchell, the whole family issued out of the Queen Anne porch, and were conducted by Troyheads, who, to their intense confusion, insisted on walking backwards to the car, while the heralds performed another flourish on their silver trumpets. It was pitch dark when they had got to the asphalt pavement outside their gates, but they could just make out the contours of the car in the light that streamed across the hedge to the stained-glass front door. "'Jolly queer-looking car,' said Clarence. It was certainly unusually large, and seemed to have somewhat fantastic lines and decorations. "'Oh, never mind about the car,' cried Mrs. Wibberley Stimson, who was inside it already, a vague, bundled-up shape in the gloom. "'It's part of the pageant, of course. Get in, Clarence, get in. We're late as it is.' and if there's a thing I detest, it's keeping people waiting.' "'All right, Mater,' said Clarence, clambering in. "'I can't make out what the dickens they've done with the bonnet. But we seem to be moving, what?' Slowly the car had begun to glide along the road. Mr. Troyheads was seated in front, probably at the steering-wheel, though none was visible. The heralds sat in the rear, and the car was of such a size that there was abundant room for the family in the centre. Some yards ahead they heard a curious dry rustle and clatter, and could distinguish a confused grey mass of forms that seemed to be clearing the way for them, though whether they were human beings it was not possible to tell till they passed the lighted street-lamp. "'Why, goodness gracious!' exclaimed Mrs. Wibberley Stimson. "'They look like—like like ostriches!' She was mistaken here, because they were merely storks, but before she could identify them more correctly— they all suddenly rose in the air with a whir like that of a hundred spinning-looms, and the car rose with them. "'Stop!' screamed Mrs. Wibberley Stimson. "'Sidney, tell Mr. Troyts to stop. I insist on knowing where we are being taken to.' Troyheads glanced over his shoulder. "'Where should I conduct your majesties?' he said. 
but to your own kingdom of Märchenland. Mrs. Stimson and her husband would no doubt have protested, demanded explanations, insisted upon being put down at once, had they been able. But whether it was that the car had some peculiarly soporific tendency, or whether it was merely the sudden swift rush through the upper air, a torpor had already fallen on the whole Stimson family. It was even questionable if they remained long enough awake to hear their destination. Daphne, for some reason, did not fall asleep till later. She lay back in her luxuriously cushioned seat, watching the birds as they flew, spread out in a white fan against the dusky blue evening sky. Gablehurst, with its scattered lights, artistic villa residences, and prosaic railway station, its valley and common and wooded hills, were far below and soon left behind at an ever-increasing distance. But she did not feel in the least afraid. It was odd, but, after the first surprise, she had lost all sense of strangeness in a situation so foreign to all her previous experience. So we're being taken to Märchenland, she was thinking. That's the same as fairyland, practically. At least, it's where all the things they call fairy stories really happened. And why, I can't imagine, but Mr. and Mrs. Stimson have been chosen king and queen, and the poor dear things have no idea of it yet. Oh, I wonder. And here, no doubt, the little creases came into her cheeks again, for she laughed softly to herself. I wonder what they'll say or do when they find out. And while Daphne was still wondering, her eyelids closed gently, and she, too, was sleeping soundly. End of chapter 2